Shout with joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. We continue to worship as we come to God in prayer. And just before we begin the prayer, I come with an apology This is one of those prayers that has a cue from the person leading the prayer and then a response from the congregation. Now, the cue is typed in front of me and the response is there as well. And it's only four words. I don't think I'm taxing anybody. If I look round, I think we'll cope with this. I want you to say, after I have said, greatly you have blessed us, our response will be, Joyfully, we worship you. Apologies for the inconvenience, but let's now turn in our prayer to God. Let's pray together. Almighty and all-loving God, we come together in the name of the living Christ to confess our faith, acknowledge your goodness, to celebrate your love, and to commit our lives afresh to your service. Greatly you have blessed us, Joyfully we worship you. We praise you for this opportunity to worship together. This time set aside week by week. This place of fellowship where we can share something of your love and above all. We praise you for the assurance we have that as we meet together, you are here amongst us. Greatly you have blessed us. Joyfully we worship you. We praise you for your great love that has searched us out and enriched our lives and for your care that constantly surrounds us through joy and sorrow, hope and fear, light and darkness. Greatly you have blessed us. Joyfully we worship you. We praise you for your sovereign power, your hand that has shaped the universe, your purpose that directs history, Your grace that transforms our lives and your spirit who sustains your church. Greatly you have blessed us. Joyfully we worship you. You've made us glad in so many ways. Your love beyond anything we can deserve. Your mercy inexhaustible and your care never failing. Greatly you have loved us. Joyfully we worship you. So now we bring you this time of worship. Not that we might withdraw from the world, but that we might serve it more effectively in your name. Not that we may escape from the daily routine of life, but that we may consecrate every moment and everything to you. Greatly you have blessed us. Joyfully we worship you. Almighty and all-loving God, receive our praise through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Our reading this morning comes from the Old Testament and can be found at page 856 of the Pew Bible. Daniel, the book of Daniel, chapter 6, starting at verse 1. Darius decided to appoint 120 governors to hold office throughout his empire. 
In addition, he chose Daniel and two others to supervise the governors and to look after the king's interests. Daniel soon showed that he could do better work than the other supervisors or the governors. Because he was so outstanding, the king considered putting him in charge of the whole empire. Then the other supervisors and the governors tried to find something wrong with the way Daniel administered the empire. But they couldn't, because Daniel was reliable and did not do anything wrong or dishonest. They said to one another, We are not going to find anything of which to accuse Daniel unless it is something in connection with his religion. So they went to see the king and said, King Darius, may your majesty live forever. All of us who administer your empire, the supervisors, the governors, the lieutenant governors, and the other officials, have agreed that your majesty should issue an order and enforce it strictly. Give orders that for 30 days no one be permitted to request anything from any god or from any human being except from your majesty. Anyone who violates this order is to be thrown into a pit filled with lions. So let your majesty issue this order and sign it, and it will be in force a law of the Medes and Persians which cannot be changed. And so King Darius signed the order. When Daniel learned that the order had been signed, he went home. In an upstairs room of his house, there were windows that faced towards Jerusalem. There, just as he had always done, he knelt down at the open windows and prayed to God three times a day. When Daniel's enemies observed his praying to God, All of them went together to the king to accuse Daniel. They said, Your Majesty, you signed an order that for the next 30 days anyone who requested anything from any god or from any human being except you would be thrown into a pit filled with lions. The king replied, Yes, a strict order, a law of the Medes and Persians which cannot be changed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, one of the exiles from Judah does not respect your majesty or obey the order you issued. He prays regularly three times a day. When the king heard this, he was upset and did his best to find some way to rescue Daniel. He kept trying until sunset. We were reading about events taking place in Downing Street, Babylon. And it was one of the most splendid palaces in Babylon that we heard from about. It was the home of the prime minister. The Babylonian slaves within the palace had orders from their master to keep the lattice of that window always open. The window on the western front. Now they attach no significance to that, those Babylonian slaves. It was a whim of their master. 
He was a foreigner, and foreigners have many whims. Perhaps he loved the sunshine and the magnificent view across the broad Euphrates Valley. Or perhaps it was the breeze that came in from the far-off hills that cooled the palace down. There was nothing very remarkable about about it. Surely, they said to one another, that a man should want to keep a window open amid the sweltering heat of Babylon. There were many other windows in Babylon which were open. And besides, this, our master, is the prime minister. And so three times a day, at sunrise and at noon, And again, at the hour of sunset, Daniel, prime minister of Babylon, went into that room in his palace, ordered his servants outside, made sure the door was shut and that he was left alone. And then the second most important man in Babylon went forward to that open window and knelt down. The sound of Babylon came through that open window, but Daniel didn't hear it. The great glittering city laid spread before him, but he didn't see it. For when Daniel knelt down at that open window and closed his eyes, he was in a different world. You know, the Scottish exile in foreign lands often dreams of the land where he was born. They can get sentimental and nostalgic about the wee cottage on the moor and the barn running through the glen and the hills with their bonny purple heather. And whether it is in Australia or Canada or somewhere else, his heart is far away and the mist comes into his eyes when he thinks of Scotland. Daniel was a Jew, although prime minister of Babylon. And you and I know there's never been a patriotism in all the world to equal the patriotism of the Jew. Away, far away in the west, 500 miles across the plain and beyond the hills lay Jerusalem, the holy city, the city of his God, and where his heart really lay. If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth, if I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. And morning, noon, and night, Daniel knelt down by his open window, Babylon forgotten, and he stood again within the city of his dreams. The open window, insignificant though it seemed to Babylonian slaves, had tremendous significance for Daniel. For me, it's the most significant thing in the life of this great man. For it speaks of a soul in exile. It's an old world story, but it's fresh again this morning. And it's the eternal parable of the human heart. Some older folks still speak of this world as Babylon, and some others of them speak of heaven 
as the new Jerusalem. And you and I, we know we live in two worlds. We dwell in a world of sense and time, but we know too our souls belong in a different world. That world that is unseen and eternal, and always we're traveling from one world to the new one. We're strangers on earth, pilgrims and sojourners here, exiles in a foreign land. Here we have no continuing city, no permanent place of abode. Our heart's true home is away yonder, away beyond the hills of time and beyond all earthly horizons. To every Christian there come moments in their life when all the glamour of the world fades away and another world becomes the only real one. And that is usually when they kneel down and pray at the open window of the soul and gaze out onto the unseen. unseen. But you know too what can, happen to, what can happen to dwellers in Babylon. There were other Jews in Babylon beside Daniel, and some of them became attached to Babylon. They entered into its life. Their business flourished as they traded with Babylonians, and they mingled in its sins, and Jerusalem receded further and further into the distance. Babylon had cast its spell upon them. All their patriotism was forgotten, for they were too comfortable in Babylon even to think of Jerusalem again. And so it happens too with folk in the Babylon of this present world. Heaven lies about us in our infancy, said a very wise person. God and the spiritual world seem to be very real and very near to us then. But we go down into Babylon and the shades of the prison house begin to close in upon us and the eye becomes dim and the ear becomes deaf to spiritual things and our consciences lose their sensitivity. The world makes its appeal to us. It presses its claims upon us. It offers us prizes and enticements. It besets us with its sins. And in the end, it makes us its slaves. Jerusalem is forgotten. All our patriotism is dead. Babylon has won. It's essential for us, essential for our soul's salvation, to keep the window open always to Jerusalem and to go out to go and gaze out often on the city of our soul's eternal residence. Now three reasons why we should keep this window open. First of all, we need to keep the window open to redeem our lives from drudgery. In one of his letters, Robert Louis Stevenson recalls meeting a farm worker while he was walking through Fife. The man was cleaning a byre when Stevenson came upon him. 
and soon they were in conversation. Stevenson found this man to be a man of some intellectual ability, able to talk intelligently about such things as education, politics, and the aims of life, subjects which are not very often, I'm told, in the minds of farm laborers. For such a man, the cleaning of a buyer seems a lowly enough occupation and not very inspiring. But as they spoke, he flashed a light upon his secret. He said to him, to Stevenson, He that has I something I want need never be weary. The grammar might be improved perhaps, but the sense is excellent. It gets us down to one of the great truths of life. It states in a memorable way, one of the avenues open to us all, out of weariness and drudgery. It's the suggestion of that extra dimension, available to all, but grasped by only a handful of people. For we're all drudges or dreamers in this world, wherever our work may be, however narrow our lot, however uninviting and uninspiring our work, we can change it by the power of vision. You know, what takes the heart out of most people these days is the narrowness of life and the monotony of the task they have to do. Day after day, it's the same routine to be gone through, the same round of duty at home or in the office or in the study, and how soon we get bored by it. We're driven to the treadmill day after day like slaves. We must go on until we die. Is it to be wondered that it drives some men to dissipation, and and tempt some to suicide. The way out of the prison, any way out of the prison in which they are confined, and the convict labor to which they are condemned. Do you think that was how he labored, who labored once in a carpenter's shop in Nazareth? And have you thought what his religion was meant to do for us? when we bring him into bear to bear on our daily work. It was meant to open a window in our lives, to give us a glimpse of something beyond. Remember this, that when Jesus worked at the carpenter's bench, the work he did was his father's business. It was the work that God himself had given him to do. Whether it was the work in the carpenter's shop or what he wrought afterwards in his public ministry in Galilee and in Jerusalem, and finally on the cross of Calvary. It was all the same. It was transfigured by what he thought about it. It was all part of the high service of God. Very dear the cross of shame where he took the sinner's blame and the tomb wherein the Saviour lay. Until the third day came, yet he bore the self-same load, and he went the same high road when the carpenter of Nazareth made common things for God. That was the window that was always open 
in the carpenter's shop in Nazareth. And that is the window he opens up for you and I, wherever our work may be, wherever our lot is cast. And when we get that window open on our lives, all work is transfigured and our lives are changed. Whether it's the cleaning of the buyer or the cleaning of the kitchen, or keeping a ledger, or spending hours in front of a computer, teaching a class of children, whatever it may be, when we get into the habit of opening that window, everything else is transfigured. And it's transfigured because it becomes the Father's business that we're engaged upon, the work God has given us to do. We're working not as slaves now, but as sons. We're laboring not in time now, but for eternity. We're not toiling merely for earthly wages, but for the smile of God, for the approval of the Heavenly Father, for God's well done. If we always have that window open, we can manage to see something ayant. We need never be weary. Then, too, we must keep this window open to shed light on the shadows of life. There are many things that perplex us here. There are so many shadows and so many mysteries, so many trials and sorrows and tears that we couldn't continue to live and be sane unless we had some further vision. We need the unseen world to interpret this world, which is seen. We need eternity to correct the things of time. We need to see these earthly perplexities and trials and troubles of this life in the light of the life which lies beyond. This life without another life to complete it and illumine it and explain it will always be a hopeless enigma. Those who have suffered much are always those who have the keenest and the furthest vision. And sometimes it's only through tears that we get a sight of that far away city. We don't think of it much in the morning of life. But then it's not in the morning of life that the darkest shadows usually fall. And at noonday, amid the distractions of Babylon, it may be crowded out of our minds. But when the first great sorrow falls on us, we begin to remember it. And before sunset, often we gaze out, looking far beyond the sunset. There are people for whom this world is the real world, and they're content with it. And the other world to them is the shadow of a dream. These are people whose lives have fallen for them in pleasant places, who've never known the real touch of sorrow, who've always basked in the sunshine, and upon whose lives shadows have never fallen. But then there are others, and they have lost those who are dear. And for them, it's so different. For them, this is the world which is the shadow of a dream. And that other world, the world to which their loved ones have gone, is the only world which is forever real. And often those folks go 
And they sit beside an open window. And they gaze and they gaze. And as they gaze, there comes from that other world one who speaks to them. And when he speaks, shadows vanish, mists lift, and they hear him say, in my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. We need to keep the window open to have light shed on the shadows of life. And then lastly, we need to keep this window open to give us victory over the world. You remember how it was with Daniel and what that open window really meant. Babylon had published a decree. There was to be no prayer in Babylon for 30 days, no prayer to the God of heaven, and anyone who was found in prayer was to be cast into the den of lions by the law of Babylon, and that never altered. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where his window opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he'd done before. Babylon had published a law, and it never altered. But Daniel didn't belong to Babylon. He belonged to another city. And, that, and in that city, there was another law, And it altered not. It was Babylon against Jerusalem. City against city. Daniel accepted the challenge and defied Babylon. Please note this. You cannot conquer the man who has seen Jerusalem. And so Babylon is always challenging Jerusalem. It's always threatening destruction upon us always threatening to throw us to the lines of its displeasure unless we stoop to its godless ways and obey its godless customs. But let the lions roar and let Babylon threaten and let the light from that western window stream in. Our citizenship is in heaven. We endure as seeing him who is invisible. For this is the victory that overcomes the world and stops the mouth of lions, even our faith. Amen. May God bless his word.